Cape Talk, Plan B with Rebecca Davis. And uh, just before we say uh, officially welcome back, we missed you to Rebecca. Stefan tells me in a note that quite a few people on Twitter are reporting that tickets are indeed sold out. So we'll try and find out what that sold out means. Lovely to have you back, Rebecca. Lovely to be here, John. And I really, yesterday, it was on the uh, the Daily Maverick website, a long and very interesting piece about private security, obviously prompted by the allegations about the, the company and Clifton Beach. We're told by both Presa and the city of Cape Town and SAPS that those investigations continue. Mm. But but you found that private security companies are more and more doing things that ordinarily we might expect the police to do. Yeah, it's it's an interesting industry, John. And it's a huge one, obviously. We know that. 9,000 or something companies, 500,000 private security officers on the streets. So that's more than twice the number of police that we have on the streets. And we also know that it's very under-regulated because there is only this one small body, Presa, which is responsible for regulating the whole industry. And, and they to- have one... One, a, yeah, according to one J.P. Inspector. Smith, they have one inspector who follows up on all the complaints and everything. So that's mad. But, you know, this issue of what what private security officers are and aren't allowed to do is interesting. Because I think in South Africa, a lot of us, myself included, have this kind of um, ingrained deference for authority to the extent where somebody comes to you wearing a semi-official looking uniform. And you do tend to kind of comply with what they're telling you. And, you know... It's just worth repeating that private security officers have no greater powers than the rest of us when it comes to searching someone, when it comes to arresting someone, and certainly when it comes to telling people to move out of public space, i.e. none in that in that. Uh, but, but the key thing there, this is a question I was going to ask you. I hoped you would want to talk about this when you came in for Plan B, is public space. Right. And private space, the rules are different. So when I arrive at UCT in the mornings to go in to rehearse at the little theatre and the man says, please fill in this form, I'm not entitled to say to him, no, because that is private property. That's right. If you go into a boomed off complex or whatever where they have their own security rules and they have signs everywhere saying you will comply with the security, you might have to sign in, sign something, then you are... Then you are, you know, beholden to the rules of the private security. But outside of those areas, private security officers simply have no right to tell you what to do. They may be doing it for your own benefit, but in that case, you have the choice of whether to comply with them or not. I was interested, John, to find out because I interviewed a bunch of private security officers who, as we know, tend to be men of color. They tend to be from disadvantaged areas and they also tend to be paid poorly in the private security industry. If you get into management, it's a bit better paid, but these guys are earning much less than police officers. And unanimously, they were all wannabe cops. The dream was to be a cop, and various of them had failed to enter SAP because of eye tests. They had you know, various corruption theories. But it's depressing that the reason they wanted to be police in some cases was because of the widespread perception that police work so much less than private security officers, that they were actually having to be out on the streets doing their work, patrolling, making arrests, etc., whereas police are seen as, you know, sitting behind a desk and also taking home benefits, medical aid, pension. The uh, the starting salary now for a cop, you know, a, a detective, whatever, in SAPS, is somewhere around 200,000 rand, which is in the top five percentile, I think, of jobs in this country. So you can understand why that is a cushy position, but also how depressing it is that it's considered a cushy position also because the amount of work you do is relatively little. Um, I also want to say, John, you know, this question of whether private security is good for South Africa or not. I mean, do you use a private security service? 
I, I have mountain men as an armed response so that if I'm here working and I get a thing saying my alarm has gone off, they will go and have a look. But, it, you know, they're not allowed, I understand, to jump over my fence to see if there are indeed people no. rifling through my, my belongings. So I'm not sure how much use they are. They can peek over the wall. Yeah, and that's it. And say, so we can't see anything. Well, that's because they're in my bedroom stealing my family jewels. Or more likely, as you probably know, it's a wind triggering yeah. your beams mm. or whatever. So 11% of South African households apparently use some kind of private security, which is not that much, but it is also, you know, fairly substantial. And I spoke to a number of experts who said that one of the most depressing things about, you know, the kind of necessary evil that is private security is just the amount of money. Somebody called it unproductive capital. So 40 to 50 billion rand being spent on this industry. And yes, it provides jobs, which is something, but it's also the kind of job where you're not necessarily likely to progress very much. You spend your day essentially driving around. And, you know, the suggestion is if, if, if a security tax was implemented, which is something J.P. Smith was at least used to be in favor of, where people actually just had to pay more towards policing, would that be a better use of those resources than people shelling out for private security? I'm sure the idea would horrify a lot of people, but it is just a, you know, it does seem like a depressing indictment that private security is that huge in South Africa and that people are willing to pay so much for it. Yeah. Uh, the I'm reading on on the newswires before I came in here that a couple of people, it's being reported without uh, absolute conviction that they are family members of one of the people who died died in the life Essie de Many thing, are uh, were were ripping to pieces the DA's billboard um, about the people that the ANC killed people at Marikana people at life Essie de Many and a couple of others. Um, it's yeah I don't know who came up with the idea. So the DA's billboard that they erected yesterday in the central CBD, I went and had a close look at the text. It says, the ANC is killing us, and there's this image of a clenched red fist dripping blood. And below that it says, in memory of those who've fallen victim to crime, Marikana, life is many, and pit toilet tragedies. And as you say, it has been torn down today. Um, whether by families of life city many or ANC operatives, as the DA seems to be claiming, is unclear. But, I mean, it is a controversial billboard, John, and I understand the DA's point. It is, as my man has said when he unveiled it, that corruption is not a victimless crime, and they're trying to get the public to join the dots between these events and the actual consequences. If I were DA strategist, I certainly wouldn't have added crime to the list because I'm not sure you can draw as clear a causal line between crime happening and an NC government, especially given the history of our of our country. But then there is this question of whether it is right for the DA to use the names of victims in that way. One of the people who was responsible for shredding the, the billboard was quoted as saying in one of the reports I read that why didn't they clear this with the family first? And certainly there was somebody else who was named yesterday and was representing the life of many victims confirmed that they hadn't been consulted in any way. And it, it does make you wonder that if you had lost a family member in a tragedy of whatever nature and a political party you did not support, perhaps felt very strongly against, then printed their name on a billboard in order to advertise their political party. I mean, it's hard not to feel that, that you would be aggrieved 
in that context. Yeah, I, I, one can't say for sure, but I think I would be aggrieved even if it was done by a political party that you did which support. had my support. Well, the NC has called the ad slanderous, and I don't think there's any, any validity to that. But I was more interested in whether it's effective, which is, after all, the point of the, the campaign. You know, this kind of negative campaigning we actually don't see that much of in South Africa compared to places like the U.S. And actually, there's, there's not that much clear evidence on the effects of negative campaigning. There was one 2007 study which found that negative ads just tend to be more memorable than positive ads, which I think makes sense. They just stick in your head longer than the ones which make enthusiastic claims and that they can have an, a greater effect on voter turnout on both sides because maybe an ANC voter will see that and become so enraged that they'll head for the, for the, the polls. But key to the effectiveness, basically, of that kind of negative campaigning is repetition, just telling you over and over again. So as it stands, I think one billboard now destroyed probably won't cut it in any rate. But it does raise questions, which I think we will face in this country, about what is and isn't appropriate when it comes to political campaigning. And this year I'm watching a Netflix series for the first time ever. Yes. Any Netflix series? Any Netflix series. And you've chosen? I have chosen Sex Education, ah. which is fabulous. It, I've watched, I'm four episodes in, and it is filthy. And you've it learned is about absolutely sex filthy. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I'm hoping that'll come in episode seven and eight. It's absolutely filthy, but it's very funny, and at times it is very wise and tenderly sad. What I'm not watching, Stefan reckons that it would help me to watch, was um, Marie Kondo, the decluttering expert's new show on Netflix. And I think you were inspired by her in your chapter, on, in, your, right. in I, your book, To Declutter Your Life. So D Marie Kondo is this Japanese woman who wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, in, I think, 2012. It was a runaway bestseller, 11 million copies. And now it's been turned into this Netflix series, which has sparked this kind of resurgence of Marie Kondo cultishness. Um, John, do, would you consider yourself a, a minimalist when it came to your personal affairs, your home, your clothes? No. Are you messy? No, I'm tidy. But, just but there's, there's quite a lot. Quite uh, a lot there are a lot better. of books and there's a lot of wine and there are a lot of old T-shirts that I cannot bear to throw away because of the memories they have for me. Well, Marie Kondo would say that was all right. So oh, you, you may know that this, the central tenet of the Marie Kondo, the KonMari tidying method, is that you must can ask yourself the question, does this spark joy? And based on that answer, you decide what to keep. I would have got rid of my children a long what, time ago. Not, I agree. This is my problem. That, that leads me down very problematic routes. But basically, let me give you a very quick step-by-step -step guide. What you've got to do, John, according to Marie Kondo, is you've got to heap everything you have of one category, say clothes, books, etc., in one room, just so you can be appalled and confronted by the sheer magnitude of all your possessions. Then you go through them one by one. You ask, does this spark joy? If not, you have to thank it for its service. You and, have to. Correct. And you did this. Yes, you do. You, you must, John. It's part but of the ritual. But you did. I did thank them. You don't yes. always do what you must. No, but I, I did. You thank it for its service and then you consign it, hopefully, to a useful place. So you give it away or whatever. Um she is adamant that when you return the clothes you're going to keep to your cupboard, you have to fold them upright. This is actually very hard unless you have very starchy clothes. But you sort of make a triangle out of your T-shirts and stack them like that, which allows you to keep more of them on one shelf. And you can see at a glance what is required. Also, obviously, hopefully you've chucked away 80% of them, which makes it a lot easier. She's also very big on little boxes. You should put everything in tiny little boxes in bigger boxes. And this apparently also helps you. 
When it comes to documents, warranties, she says, chuck them. Just chuck them. You'll never need them. It seems a bit reckless to me, but that's what Marie Kondo says. Presents, unwanted presents, get rid of them, she says. Their purpose has been served when the person gave them to you, and I fully endorse that. But books, John, I think books is where you and Marie Kondo would have a problem. Because Marie Kondo strongly feels you need to aggressively prune your bookshelves, keeping only the books which might be of use to you in the future. Use is obviously quite a... Nebulous term. I have very little evidence for my unsubstantiated claim to be an intellectual, but when I walk into my front door and look left and I see floor to ceiling books, I go, oh, maybe. But you haven't considered the effect on your mental health because this is the claim that by decluttering your house in this way, you will declutter your mind, I wish you John. could see Rebecca's face. It's staring. It's like she's <laughs> inviting you to a cult. You will become a clear... Your skin will clear, Marie says. Your body will clear. You will become a lighter, brighter person in concert with your home surrounds. And despite advanced cynicism, it worked for you, if I remember the chapter in the book. It did, and I've recently done another prune. However, note, compulsive decluttering can be a manifestation of obsessive compulsive disorder, just the other spectrum of hoarding. And British TV producers found the perfect solution recently when they made a show called Obsessive Compulsive Cleaners, where they sent these people to clean the homes of the hoarders. Everyone won. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very much. That's why we missed you so much.